0: From Buffalo Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next? Producers' Picks. Important interviews you may have missed from our daily discussion on race, segregation, and our shared humanity. Today, heart-wrenching stories on the troubled history of Native American residential boarding schools.
1: It took me eight hours first of crying just to read through my mother's file the first time I read it.
0: Fighting for funding. Hear from community health groups worried about a shortfall coming in April. This carve-out
2: only impacts that safety net. We're talking about communities of color, people living with HIV, LGBT folks.
3: Activist Alex Burgos. We need to have lifelong investment in our community, but also in the people in our community.
0: And Bishop Michael Badger from Bethesda World Harvest International, all coming up on today's program. I'm Jay Moran. Thanks for being with us. We begin with Dr. Lori Quigley, the interim president of Madai University, a member of the Seneca Nation Wolf Clan, and a researcher into the history of residential boarding schools for Native Americans in Western New York. I want to start off with with a question that I finished with Dr. Jason Corwin yesterday from the University of Buffalo uh, Indigenous Studies Department. When, and I didn't say if, but I said when, when the greater American society comes to understanding indigenous populations what's the hope what's the optimism what are we going to see when we when we as a society get there because
1: i would say that for me personally if the american public could just acknowledge number one our current existence and number two the history that we have from our perspective I don't really think that we really in this country have acknowledged that from our perspective, we see Thanksgiving as something different. From our perspective, uh, land loss, okay, and and what that has done. From our perspective, you know, the residential boarding school era that uh, as far as I know, no other, you know, uh, racial ethnic group in this country has ever gone through. And, you know, the generational impact that that has left on our communities to this day. The importance for us of maintaining our indigenous languages, of maintaining our sovereign territories, is huge. And I don't think that the American public can really fully appreciate and understand that yet.
0: I want to get into boarding schools. So I'm going to kind of uh, sure. warn our listeners perhaps to to be prepared for uh, an emotional journey here coming up. I've spent a lot of time researching boarding schools.
1: Yes, My mother uh, was a survivor of Thomas Indian School, and we do refer to those who made it as survivors, okay? But what I could see in my own Native community, and as I was also a young mother, the multi-generational impact, the the traumatic impact that still exists in our communities today, and I wanted to learn more about what actually happened, what happened at Thomas Indian School. And as I was beginning my research, um, a professor, uh, Dr. L- Lawrence Hopman from SUNY New Paltz, actually said to me that the when the state closed Thomas Union School in 1957, they actually shipped all the records, and they're housed in the New York State Archives. And I don't think anybody knew that. Certainly all the survivors that I've talked to from Thomas School did not know that there were even records kept. And when you go to the archives, there are two groups of, of archival materials. One is for the public. Anybody can go and take a look at the superintendent's reports, you know, uh, the school newsletters, um, you know, records that were kept by the... Uh, food, food staff is you know uh, all of that. That's for okay. public. But what records that individuals didn't even know—my mother never knew existed—were sealed case files. So when the school, when New York State took it over, at the time it was the New York State Board of Charities, I believe, is when they started keeping records of all the the children who lived there. And the children who lived there, they weren't just from Seneca. They were from all the tribal nations across New York State, all the six nations, plus the two Long Island tribes. And I don't think people realize that. So children that, from
0: Long Island were brought yes, up to Western Shinnekox, New York.
1: the Pouspatox, yes. And um, I was able to get permission from 20 uh, survivors to open up their sealed case files. And they're, they're quite personal. And what I learned is each person's story is different as to how they got there. Okay. My mother never really knew how she got there.
0: When, what age was she when she got there? Just...
1: She was five years old. Okay. She was there for 10 years. Um, and, you know, all the records are different. I, I discovered that uh, some Tuscaroras that I had uh, interviewed were placed there after their parents had been killed. And right from the funeral gravesite, they were taken down there. Okay. Every story is different. Okay. Right?
0: Would you like to expand on your mother's story for us?
1: For my mother's story, my mother was placed in foster care. And um, and she always kept in touch with her foster parents because they really wanted to keep her. But for whatever reason, the state deemed that it would be best to put her in Thomas Indian School. So she ended up
0: who, who made those kind of decisions?
1: Somebody working in the state?
0: Somebody had that kind of power.
1: Yes, and I would say that the social worker Francis Kincaid who was hired by Thomas Indian School in my opinion had more power over the children's lives than the superintendent did in her decision making. And you can actually see it in the communications and in what she wrote about my mother that's in her my mother's case file. For example, my mother's great aunt Betty Never went to Thomas Indian School, never had her own children, but she adopted children. And my mother could never figure out, why didn't you come adopt me? Well, by the time I had opened up my mother's case file, my aunt had pa- my great-aunt had passed away. But I found in there communication from my aunt to Frances Kincaid asking if she could take my mom and adopt her. Mm. And for whatever reason, Frances Kincaid made the decision, no, you cannot. But my mother never knew that. And I think my mother always held it against my aunt for adopting other children but not her. But the answers were right there in that file through those letter exchanges. And there's more of my mother's unanswered questions that were answered by documents in that file and and everything that happened to my mother. My mother never understood why she was selected with other girls her age at the age of 15 to leave Thomas Indian School and go work in what was called wage homes for uh, affluent families. Wage homes? Yes, my mother was actually placed in a wage home, which is the mansion that is currently used and owned by SUNY Fredonia for their president's house and she was placed there as a maid at the age of 15 without permission of her family. In fact, her extended family took them a while to figure out where the school had placed her. It was a horrible experience for my mom. My mom passed away in August, and a couple of years before she was placed in a nursing home, my mother asked if I would take her back to that home. I said, you know where that home is? She goes, yes, it's the home of the SUNY uh, Fredonia Pre- president. And we went through the front door, and Uh, learned that that was the first time she was ever allowed to walk in the front door because she was only allowed to walk in the back door of the butler's area. She, they also built a bathroom for her. So if you remember that movie, The Help, about the the African American woman yep. working for, where they built them a separate bathroom. Same thing happened in that big mansion for my mother. She lived in the in one of the attics. She was never allowed to dine with the family, and she and, had and no choice. She had no choice, and some really severe I, I some, some was, severe I, things happened with with her there in that family. And uh, totally felt uh, isolated and unloved. I think at at one point, one Christmas, the way my mother told the stories, I I believe that it was at that point in time where she felt so alone that, you know, I think suicide definitely crossed her mind. She talks about it, okay? And I think that that whole visit was a way of my mom trying to reconcile with what happened to her. And it was a Methodist minister that my mother finally turned to and asked for help to get her out of that place. So, How long was I, she there? She was there for, for uh, two years.
0: So from 15 to 17. Yes. She was forced to live and work in a, a place she had no choice in. Yes,
1: exactly. And you know what I discovered in her file? The money that she earned went back to the school because the receipts are all in there. The detailed receipts are in my mother's case file. So when my mother finally was able to, pay, to get into Alfred, she went to Alfred State, and she paid her way by working in the registrar's office. There's a letter that she wrote during that time back to Frances Kincaid asking her for money because she needed a winter coat. She needed sanitary supplies as a young woman. And Frances Kincaid wrote back and denied her that. I'd like to know, where's all that money that my mother was never able to get? How come it went back to the school? And that's just one example, again, of many. Other horrific things that happened medically to, you know, some of the individuals that I took a look at in their files. And
0: when you say medically, are we kind of stretching the use of the term there?
1: Uh, yeah. What What's interesting is that there's little cards that uh, the state had where you would have to sign off the parent's permission, but the handwriting on all of them is the same. So that, that leads you to be a little suspicious. And you know some of the things that happened to the children at that time, um, and what they went through, whether they were being used as guinea pigs or whatever. I think often, you know, when I talk to a lot of the survivors, and many of them are are no longer living today, they would they they were definitely convinced that they were used um, as guinea pigs for vaccinations, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see, you know, some some of the operations that they had. There was no parental permission. When they, were, when they lived there, they were also uh, isolated from their siblings. They were also isolated from families, you know, and there was a lot of heartache and, you know, not understanding why families never came to visit, why they were never allowed to go visit families.
0: They were not allowed to go they visit. They
1: weren't, no. Even those, I, even, that, that happened in my mother's case, too, where a great auntie who lived on the west side of Buffalo wanted to have my mother come up for Christmas she made the mistake of at, of writing to my mother first that she was going to ask Francis Kincaid. Okay, and if you you put all the pieces together with the dates of the letter, Francis Kincaid was not happy that my her great auntie had, had asked my mother first before she asked Miss Kincaid, and she Francis Kincaid in her letter back to my mother said, "Well, she hasn't been behaving." Well, then I looked at the anecdotal records, and she was. Frances Kincaid was great at writing anecdotal records. There was nothing behaviorally wrong noted in my mother's records at that period of time. Okay? And yet that was the excuse that she used for not allowing her to go. And she says, it's too bad that you didn't ask me first. She starts to let her out that way. So I said, well, that's the reason that she chose not that my mother was having behavioral issues in the girl's dormitory, because the anecdotal records prove that she wasn't. Wow. Yeah. So it took me it took me 8 hours first of crying just to read through my mother's file the first time I read it. And then hours afterwards of sifting through and analyzing and putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And I did the same for many other families. Some of the families asked me for copies of their files and others I don't think they just they just don't want to see what's in there.
0: You're outlining some horrific realities here. Let's It was located on what is now Route 438?
1: Route 438 between Gowanda and Irving on Seneca Nation Territory. After following the Buffalo Creek Treaty, when the Senecas were forced to all go back down to Cattaraugus, the missionaries, uh, Laura and Asher Wright, who were Presbyterian, moved their mission back down there. And I believe at that time, I think they probably had, you know, good intentions of helping the children and the families out because there was such dire stricken poverty, you know, just rampant through the reservation at that time. And uh, it was named after a Quaker benefactor, Philip Thomas, and that's where the name actually you okay. know came from. Thomas Indian School it used to be Thomas Asylum uh, for destitute and orphan children. All right, and uh, the survivors always called it Salem as as you know just as you know sort of a nickname. Um, and then eventually it was taken over by the state of New York and eventually in 1957 because of the conditions and the poor education of the children, they actually closed – they closed. They had closed the, the school. It was a decision that the governor at, the t- at that time had made. How long was it open? It was open well over 100 years. So thousands of children actually attended there, uh, either as residential schools and some as day students. And the experiences I've learned from the day students is quite different from those who actually live there. I remember looking at one photo in the New York State archives of the dormitory, and I had shown it to my mom. I said, is this exactly what it looked like, a bunch of beds? And she goes, yeah, that's exactly what it looked like. As she's describing it, she begins to unravel some stories. And one of the stories she said, well, at night, you know, we would wait for the matrons to go to bed. And sometimes we, we'd have fun and we'd jump on the beds and laugh, but we'd always get in trouble. But then there were many nights when you could just hear the girls crying, one mm-hmm. girl crying, one girl crying, there, because they were so lonely and they missed their families and not understanding what happened to them. I think for my mom, for my family, what's really difficult uh, is that Uh, just prior to the pandemic, we had to put my mom in a nursing home because she began to get dementia. And which was hard because anybody who was in a nursing home at that time, they just didn't understand what was going on. Okay. So I wasn't able to even see my mom for quite a number of months. Um, And I was able then to visit her through windows, through, Mm -hmm. you know, doorway, you know, but I was contacted by the staff because they had concerns over my mom. And This is the story behind the concerns. I went to visit, you know, my mom when we were talking to the glass doors, and she goes to me, Laura, you're not going to believe what happened to me. I said, what? Well, last night, those guys in the white coat, they took me outside, and they threw me against the brick wall of the building. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what kind of place have we put my mom in? And then it dawned on me after conversations with her, through her dreams she was reliving in her dementia what happened to her at Thomas Indian School. And so I had to explain to the staff that, no, she's not telling stories or lies about the staff. She's reliving what happened to her as a child. And because of her dementia, it's too hard for her to break apart, well, was this a dream or is this actual her reality right now in her state of dementia? So the saddest thing for my family is having known that my mother's life started in an institution and ended in an institution, you know, and going through much of the same trauma- that you know we never knew she would go through and have repeated again because of her dementia they are very sad
0: absolutely and to hear that that notion that you know upon her dementia she flashes back to those early years obviously she was living with those memories yes, throughout her life how exactly. how best can you understand how she coped
1: i think she coped because Many of the children there were told that they weren't going to be anything but a bunch of drunk Indians. Mm. They were told that.
0: They were told that.
1: And sadly, for my mom and and you know those that she lived with, for many of them, I think she could see it was becoming a reality. Certainly, when I was, you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, she began taking me to funerals of people I didn't know, but there were people she lived with who that became a a reality for them, a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. But for my mother, she said, "I'll be damned if I'm going to let them tell me." that this is what's going to happen to me. There's something in her. She doesn't know where it came from that was set out to prove them wrong. And, you know, when I talked about her files before, I noticed that Frances Kincaid kept track of my mom until she married my father. And my mother never knew she even did that, okay, which is really interesting. Um, but certainly I think that my mother would often tell, you know, her five daughters, she'd say to us, I don't even know how I'm able to raise you. And it was never I was never raised in a family environment. You know, and she certainly ran our household like an institution. We had our chores. She posted them every week. You know, we had to make our beds the military style, the way that they were taught. Um, we had to iron, you know, our clothes the way that she was taught because that's what they were taught, right. you know, as, as young women at Thomas Indian School. And she made sure that, you know, uh, the meals were sort of done a lot of the same. And uh, uh, But that's what she knew. That's what that's what she grew up with. We didn't get the the hugs, the kisses, the I love you because she she didn't. She didn't grow up with that. But right. we knew our mom loved us. Okay. We knew you know, we we learned, you know, through conversations with her what happened. They were, you know, if any of them were caught speaking the language, they were they were harshly and you know, severely punished for it. And it's really it's really a sad testimony what happened to people in what we would still call contemporary times. Most well, certainly seriously.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Nineteen fifty seven is not all that long ago. No, it's not. So for ten years of her life. She's had her heritage ripped away from her. Yes. The the formative years for her. Did she return to some of that (laughs) after it was over?
1: She actually ended up, after she married my father and they lived um, in the Dunkirk, Fredonia area, they actually moved to the reservation probably when I was about four years old. And interestingly enough, my mother went back to what you would call home, okay? My sisters and I, following my mother, my mother ended up going back, to getting her, her Seneca name, which is Jagonia. She returns. Isn't that interesting? Yes. And, you know, and we were all, you know, went through um, long-haul ceremonies to get our names as well. But I think that there was something probably that happened to her and, and from her understanding that she always wanted to give back to her people. And so she worked for the Seneca Nation um, in different capacities for a number of years. She was also served as the Seneca Nation counselor. She also served as part of the Seneca lease negotiating team of the council when they renegotiated that. She spoke; it was her testimony in Congress that is still used in at UB's uh, Native Studies Indigenous Studies program. So she she certainly had an impact, and she was always giving back. And I think that's why. Probably I am the same way, okay, uh, my, just my
0: hopeful Yeah, I'm just gonna, I was my, just going to ask, though, yeah. I mean, did you find inspiration in your oh, mother's most story? most definitely,
1: most definitely, and my mother and I uh, were very close. My mother was the founder of New York State's Indian Education Association. I certainly chaired that association uh, for 10 years, if not longer, and I'm still associated with that, and, and now at the national level, you know, I've had... Uh, presidential appointment to the National Advisory Council in Indian Education. I currently serve as person for National Indian Education Association. So I would say that my mother had tremendous impact on me and my life and, and the direction that I went in.
0: And yet she saw other examples of uh, her yes. schoolmates who exactly. didn't have such yeah. a fruitful existence, perhaps. And I
1: think that's probably why she became the person she became. She just wanted, she wanted to, to make sure that people could overcome that her way of giving back to community. She certainly helped out a lot of Native students in New York State at the higher ed level because she also went into higher education administration. She worked at St. Bonaventure for a number of years as their founding higher education opportunity program director. When she retired, she worked uh, as a counselor, guidance counselor at Randolph Academy, which is a, a school... District, if you will, that takes in children from across Western New York that aren't successful in other schools, and uh, she fit in really well with those kids. And I, can, you can only
0: imagine why. Dr. Lori Quigley. Up next, Dave Debo talks with activist Alex Burgos.
4: Alex, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. A little biographical stuff. If we can start with your your origin story, as it were.
3: Well, <laughs> Buffalo, born and bred. Born and raised. I was born in Sister's Hospital um, to my beautiful Puerto Rican family. Lifelong Buffalo resident, super proud, love my city, know where I'd rather be in the entire world. And so with that, I want to deliver resources. I want to bring about the change I want to see, and I want everybody in the city to have a better life.
4: Before the program started, we we were chatting uh, outside the studio briefly. You said that you knew from an early age that you were facing some sort of discrimination?
3: Absolutely. Um, you know, I think from when I was very young, I knew I was different Okay. in a multitude of ways, but I also think I knew I was different in a positive way because I knew I wasn't just going to sit around and look the other way and stand around with that being said, the things that made me different, that once hurt me and the things that I thought were weaknesses are things that I actually now see as my superpower.
4: And are you referring to, uh, you, you're upfront. I'm not telling the world any secret here, you're a gay man and you're a Latino. Yes. Which one of those results in maybe more discrimination or more obstacles for you?
3: Um, I think I have a very unique uh, experience and perspective being both a person of color and a member of the LGBT community in that I don't think that I can really choose one or the other. I think my whole existence—it is—it is you. That's me. Okay. And from a very young age, I knew that my entire existence was heavily politicized, and that people like me were always at the forefront of you know negative policy change or legislative action. Um, and I knew that from when I was eight years old. Really? And yeah. The th- politics portion of it at eight years—that's interesting to me. Eight, nine, ten. That was around the time when the 2008 presidential elections were on their way and people were name dropping themselves as candidates. And then eventually, as time went on, the first race that I fully, fully paid attention to was the historic primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, Mm -hmm. and which eventually led to the historic victory of Barack Obama. So, I mean, I was not only, uh, you know, experiencing my first moment of being engaged, I was also witnessing history. And I think you're going to see that in a lot of younger millennials and Gen Z, that their first intro into maybe politics or activism uh, occurred during moments that are profoundly historic.
4: That's interesting, because I think the trope, the younger generation doesn't care. They're not active. They're not involved. Okay, yeah, there might have been that Bernie Sanders thing that, that fired people up. But by and large, they're not involved. That's the stereotype. Pushback.
3: I I don't think that's true. I mean, I'm always surrounded by young people who are absolutely brilliant and engaged and really want to be the change that they want to see in the community. I think there needs to be more investment in young people, in young leaders across the board, not just on the political spectrum, but we need to invest in our young nonprofit leaders. We need to invest in our young leaders in the private sector. We need to invest, again, in our young leaders emerging in politics because eventually the time will come when they have big shoes to fill And we need to make sure that they're ready, equipped, and prepared to hit the ground running.
4: It almost sounds like you're saying we don't have a deep enough bench or we're not recognizing the the power of the farm team.
3: Well, I think that there there absolutely needs to be a bigger investment in younger leaders. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud to be someone that does that and has done that for my entire career. You know, I create a lot of community programming and events where youth are centered. And it's not very often especially in LGBT events where you see that they are youth-centered and youth-specific. Really? Yes. Interesting. Uh, I would not have known that. No, and and a lot of people don't, and I'm really happy to see, you know, a lot greater investment happening in youth programming um, as well as to be someone that creates that, particularly for the black and brown LGBTQ youth by creating events like ballroom events.
4: I was going to um, ask you, give me an example of something you've you've created recently. Oh,
3: my God. The one that everyone always talks about. Uh, in June for Pride Week, we had done the Intersect Vogue Night, which basically we had closed off Allen Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had had a stage built, and we had ballroom categories for cash prizes and free tickets to Pride. We had about 500 people there. Um, primarily black and brown LGBT people. So that's always an event that people always talk about, whether they saw it on Facebook Live or they saw it on an Instagram story or they see photos or videos. That's the one that everyone always mentions to me and asks me every single time, are you going to bring it back?
4: And, of course, the answer is sure. I hope so. <laughs> okay. All right, fair enough. You mentioned Pride, and I, I want to uh, point out a, a quote they recently po- profiled on Channel 2. Uh, My dear friend, Claudine Ewing, her community program, she included this quote from the raising of the pride flag, where you said, homophobia, racism, and transphobia are a cultural malignancy. They are a trifecta of public health crisis that exacerbates the disparities that we face every single day. That's powerful stuff. Thank you. Talk a little bit about each one of those components. And as you said in that quote, how perhaps they, they they work together as a trifecta. Homophobia, racism, transphobia.
3: I... Do they all walk down the same street together? <laughs> <laughs> They're definitely neighbors. Okay. Um, you know, in all seriousness, they are a branch, perhaps different branches of the same tree. The same tree. And ultimately, the only way to truly eradicate them is to dig out that tree, get out that root, and... Throw it away in an eco-friendly compost. In an eco-friendly um, <laughs> <laughs> um, But I, I always say that, you know, a systemic problem requires a systemic solution. And, you know, as someone that has worked in various capacities throughout the system, I recognize that the change that people want is not always a change that they get or the delivery is not always the way they expect. But it is, in fact, a move in the right direction.
4: I've had a discussion on this program with a lot of different people that work in the public health arena, and and it's interesting that you talk about the systemic nature of it because there are some, and I know I've, I've, I've discussed this on the program before, there are some that say, you got to just treat the health problem that's in front of you. If someone is in need, they have a need, you solve that need. The other philosophy is that this thing is, as you said, systemic, that you got to dig out the roots. How do you dig out a root? That seems to be a really tough road to hoe if we can continue with the gardening metaphors.
3: You know, I think for me personally, being the change I want to see and stepping up and doing my part is uh, what I do. I think folks can all contribute in various capacities, whether that be through voting, whether that be through activism, um, whether that be through working within uh, said system. We need people across the board. Uh, And I think all activism is for the most part, good, and all intersects and intertwines very well. I also think that activism doesn't just have to be, you know, what most people think of, like protesting or being on the media or whatever the case may be. If you're giving someone a safe space to just be themselves, if you're giving someone room to unwind and relax, if you're giving someone a place where they can talk and ask questions, that in itself is revolutionary and impactful
4: validating their voice or their perspective brings it to the debate in a way that you say is constructive.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I mean, when you are affirming someone, when you're building them up, you never know what future lies ahead of that person. You don't know the impact that you may have in the life of that person. I mean, let me tell you something. Even just a few years ago, I didn't think that I could have the level of influence or do the kind of work that I do now. And it took... People who really believed in me, people who really instilled the resilience of human spirit and, um, you know, all of that that got me through. And so I live with that philosophy that because of that nurturing and that care and that affirmation that I got, I now have to pass that blessing on to other people.
0: Alexander Burgos. This is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Highlights from our recent daily discussion on WBFO. Still to come, Bishop Michael Badger. But first, a look at state funding fears for community health partners. Mike Lee, the COO of Evergreen Health, and Liza, one of their clients.
4: We speak on this program a lot about underserved communities, groups of people who don't, in this case, have adequate access to health care. And in Greater Buffalo, there are four health care providers that specifically work to help out that population. With us now is Mike Lee, the Chief Operating Officer for Evergreen Health. A little later, we'll chat with Liza, one of Evergreen's clients. But first, Mike, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. What is...
2: 340B, this is a program that exists now in Albany that gives
4: you some of their funding?
2: What 340B is, is it's actually a federal program that allows certain covered entities uh, like federally qualified health centers and Ryan White providers to get uh, discounts on uh, outpatient prescription drugs from manufacturers, so it's not necessarily funding a taxpayer-funded program. It is a uh, discount that uh, you get from uh, drug manufacturers if you're a certain if you have a certain status. How does that work? That the federal government
4: is in a position to give a discount on behalf of a drug company. So,
2: as part of uh, drug manufacturers participating in the Medicare and Medicaid programs, uh, one of the things that they have to allow is uh, certain covered entities, again, that mainly safety net providers, to participate in this 340B program. So by virtue of them participating in the Medicaid, Medicare program, they also agree to participate in the 340B program and give discounts to safety net providers. And where does the state come in? Thus far, we've talked about it as a federal program.
4: But the the reason I think that you folks want to speak out about it is because there's something pending at the state level.
2: Absolutely. So the state uh, three years ago decided uh, right now managed care plans – administer the pharmacy benefit. So right now, if somebody comes in, managed care plan covers the pharmacy benefit. The state wanted to come in and take the pharmacy benefit out of those managed care plans and put them to fee-for-service. Not to get very technical, and I know it's it's kind of boring, but anytime the prescription drug benefit is removed from the managed care plans and given right over to fee-for-service to straight Medicaid, you have to bill acquisition pricing. So that means the federal government can only pay acquisition pricing is that basically if i was buying a car that would be sticker price is that what you're saying so yes that no that would be just the cost to make the car so just to dumb it down sort of in a nutshell The 340B program and the managed care plan, the manufacturer gives the covered entity like Evergreen the discount on the drugs. We then bill the payer the full price. So the difference between the discount and the reimbursed price, that delta, is what covered entities, safety net providers, use to further patient care and services. So you get a discount from the manufacturer. You bill the insurance payer the full price, the retail for it, and then you keep the difference to pay for underserved populations.
4: So it's not just a discount on the the pharmaceuticals, it's an operating revenue stream for you.
2: So it is. It is absolutely a source of revenue that a lot of safety net providers use. In fact, most of us here in Western New York absolutely depend on it.
4: And how is the state involved if it's a federal program? What sort of jeopardy is there for this program at the state level right
2: now? So the state has said, we're going to take that pharmacy benefit and we're going to move it out of the managed care plans. By law, the covered entities cannot bill straight Medicaid, you know, the full retail cost of it. They have to just provide do acquisition pricing, which is the cost of the drug. So by doing that, what the state has done is they've taken the resources for themselves. They've taken the ability of the covered entity to, you know, build the retail price, build the retail, keep the delta. Instead, the state is swooping in. They're taking the resources. So the state's getting the discount, and then they they want to increase rebates on the back end.
4: Do they say that they will still give you
2: some sort of pass-through? So at the end of this process... There is no there is no revenue. The state has been in conversations with us. we've had I've had several conversations with the state uh, myself in which they've said that they want to make everybody whole. all the all the covered entities across the state, the reality is if you talk to folks in California who went through a similar thing, as soon as there were budget issues, you know that fund was the first thing to go. And if you talk to a covered entity in California today, they still have not received, ascent of this. So I think it's very dangerous. You know, it's December today. This, this fiscal cliff, this goes in uh, motion on April. So there's nothing the state has done to prepare for this. There's no mechanism in place. So there is no mechanism to make us whole.
4: So you are not able to avoid the change, but you want some sort of assurance that, that the money's in a lockbox, that it's not rateable.
2: Right. And unfortunately, only, you know, that's a budgetary issue. The Department of Health doesn't have the ability to set aside indefinite, you know, sums of money uh, for safety net providers.
4: What is the state's rationale? I imagine they're arguing that if they bring it in-house, as it were, that
2: they can then save money and, and not necessarily... Cut anything from your budget? Sure. I think the state's, one of the state's arguments, of course, they want to increase transparency. They want to, you know, increase the amount of rebates that they're able to get on some of these drugs. Um, you know, they they want a single formulary. And the reality is that we have looked and we have worked across other states. There are other states that have, that have had similar wants and needs and have come up with a way to not decimate the safety net to achieve that. And I think that's one of the struggles is we continually try to work, you know, with the Department of Health and, of course, the Hochul administration. You know, when the top shooting happened in East Buffalo, we got a call from Kathy Hochul's office, and I pulled in Akua Menzidu, our chief people and diversity officer, and we had a conversation. Sure. We've had around the program, sure. And they said, "What do you need, you know, to continue to provide primary care?" And we had a great conversation. At the end, I said, it's very simple what we need. You know, when we look at how we're achieving increasing patient services and and adding patient services and increasing wraparound things, we need the 340B program. We need you to delay or reverse the carve out. We need you to to figure something else out. And their response to me was, yep, we're aware of it. And that was the end of the conversation. So I, I do think, like, this is this program is the one thing that's propping up safety net providers across Buffalo. Everybody, Community Health Center Buffalo, Jericho Road Neighborhood Health Center, Chautauqua Center. We're all in the same boat. Where this will decimate us.
4: Why does it matter? Talk to me a little bit about the mission of Evergreen, or similarly situated community health centers.
2: One of the reasons this is a big deal when we talk about the managed care plans and the Medicaid folks, 70% of our patients are on a managed care plan. So the state swooping in and removing the 340B benefit basically wipes away the benefit for safety net providers. When we talk about things like dental dental services, when we talk about behavioral health services, you know, mental health, substance use, pantry services, transportation, you know, safety net providers know that those ancillary wraparound services are vital you know somebody that has hiv we can say all you have to do to have to live a happy normal life is take this pill once a day but that doesn't happen if they don't have a place to live if they don't have transportation to their medical appointments if they are having dental problems and addressing those those ancillary needs are really what get us the great health outcomes and those are non those aren't reimbursed by any health care plan and if we lose those resources and they're not reimbursed there's nothing else we have no choice but to cut services at that point. There's no other option.
4: And the nature of these providers, you would argue, is basically underserved populations, period.
2: This carve-out by the state targets only safety net providers. When I said that we all, are, all of us have, you know, when it with it's evergreen Jericho Road, we all serve a very high uh, percentage of traditionally underserved, historically marginalized populations. This carve-out only impacts that safety net. This this carve-out only applies to them, and it disproportionately impacts them. We're talking about communities of color, people living with HIV, LGBT folks. These are folks that stand to lose the most in this carve-out because... Because the folks like Evergreen who, who provide a great deal of care to these folks on Medicaid managed care plans are going to be severely impacted the most.
4: This might be the point to pause and get a little bit of background on who Evergreen is and who they serve.
2: So Evergreen Health was born out of the HIV-AIDS epidemic and, of course, as um HIV uh, responded to antiretrovirals. We continued to grow. We continued to grow and serve a lot of LGBTQ population, people living with HIV, communities of color. uh, Most recently, the intellectually and developmentally disabled, and we took over Aspire and People Links Primary Care. So these are all patient populations that either folks can't serve or don't want to serve, and Evergreen has got a niche. One of the the lobbying points that I've seen you have
4: is that a policy that only negatively impacts those in need, you say, is not equitable and will harm Western New Yorkers. There's a population here that you feel is being targeted.
2: Absolutely, there's not a doubt in my mind, and I think that's it's really upsetting. The community health centers and FQHCs and Ryan White providers, we all provide care to high a high margin, a high high rate of disenfranchised populations, a high Medicaid population. So if you have the state and you're saying, we're going to take this benefit away from the safety net population, from the folks that are on a managed care plan, by taking this away from the Medicaid populations, the folks that, you know, the disenfranchised populations we serve, this, it harms them the most. They're the ones that are going to lose services. We're not talking about people that are, you know, going to a private practice or something like that, or that have commercial insurance. We're talking about people that have high rates of poverty, chronic illness, and everything else.
4: Let's then take that a step further, look at some of the examples of how that plays out, particularly at a place like Evergreen. One of your clients is here. Liza, thanks for stopping by. Thank you for having me. What does this mean to you?
5: Whoa. So it means a lot to me. Uh, This can affect me personally because I'm a person living with HIV. I've
4: been living with HIV for 28 years. And you take daily medication for it that would disappear, perhaps, if this goes ahead?
5: Absolutely. Well, actually, I'm on a newer medication that's an injectable medication that I get every two months. But yes, I have to have that medication.
4: Why do you need Evergreen? Why can't you just walk into, I don't know, your pharmacy and say, hey, I I need my injectable now? Realizing that injectable is not something you do at home, but... Uh, to what degree is Evergreen your sole provider? You said something about why I can't just go
5: to the pharmacy. Well,
4: Or, or another doctor, a different provider that different, isn't necessarily linked to this tr- funding stream.
5: My experience is that there are not, not many providers that are willing to work with people like me. And when I say people like me, I mean people that are living with HIV, someone who has a history of substance abuse. I used to be an IV drug user. I have been in recovery for 24 years. So, when that history comes up, it has always been my experience that providers treat me differently and they don't give me the care that I deserve.
4: Tell me more about that. Give me a personal story.
5: Oh, okay. Um, I have a few. But going, I had to have an eye thing done one time, and at that point in my life, I was not comfortable with sharing openly about my status, but I would with medical providers. And I did with this eye doctor. He was going to do a surgery procedure. Um, I did not put it on the paperwork. I wanted to discuss that with the doctor one-on-one. And he got very upset at me because I didn't put it on the paperwork. Really? And he told me that that's dangerous and I shouldn't be doing that.
4: Um and I was hurt and that stigma. But it's not if it's not as if at that point in the in the discussion he had started a procedure. No.
5: no there was, was no
4: no risk of contamination. No. N- nothing, nothing that would put him at risk.
5: Absolutely not. It was me. I wanted to talk to him one on one in person because he was the provider and I understood that he had, would have to keep that confidential. I just wasn't comfortable with putting that on Paper at the time.
4: All right, and is that the kind of thing that drove you to a provider like Evergreen?
5: Well, that's one of the things that Evergreen—they treat me as a person. They don't treat me as a person living with HIV, right? Um, they have helped me with housing. You know, recently, as seven years ago, I left a long-term relationship. Even not being a, even with a job, it was difficult to find decent housing that was affordable. Um, I did not have the money for a security deposit. And Evergreen came through for me.
4: You said you don't like being seen as a person living with HIV. But I think part of the benefit for me during this discussion is to, quite frankly, look at the experiences of a person living with HIV. So how often have you been discriminated against because of your status?
5: Um, There's been many opportunities, and it's just not the the HIV status. the, The fact that I have a drug use history has also been held against me. Um, I'm a convicted felon. That has been held against me. So I've had like almost three strikes against me where when I come to Evergreen, I'm just Liza. I need medical care. I need dental care. I need pharmacy help. I may need housing. I don't know. One day I might need the food pantry.
4: Talk to me about the cost involved here. Let's say you did not have Evergreen or some of the other options that, that we're talking about within this context. Would you be able to still get those services but at a different price or for you is the issue, uh, forgive me, the humanity, the idea that they, again, look at you as a person and give you the kind of treatment that you deserve. Is there a financial part of it or is it just a a um, ease and comfort thing, I think lack of discrimination?
5: I think it's a little bit of both, right? So me personally, I do have a job. I do get health care through, through my employer. Um, actually, I work at Evergreen, right? Um, but— Everybody, I remember there was a time when I was on Medicaid myself, mm. and Evergreen was my lifesaver at that time. They still are because they are my medical provider also. Okay. Um, so it's a little bit of both. It's financial, and it's also— um, Attitudinal. Yes. It's stigmatized, the, the stigma behind it, right? Um, again, it's very difficult to find providers that will just take care of me because that's what they're supposed to do and not really them taking everything else into account.
4: Before you found Evergreen, were you with just a basic standard private practice provider?
5: Well, I actually go back to Mike Mike mentioned about the history of Evergreen and I was with them. Like I said, I've been living with HIV for 28 years. So back in the day, I was with Evergreen. How
4: far back, let's go back. How far uh, oh. what, what when were you first when did you first find out that you were HIV positive?
5: So it was 1984, 1984 1994, I'm sorry, 1994. Um, and it was a short time after that that I was uh, referred to Evergreen. Um, and there was a time where I was also at ECMC because they do provide HIV care there also.
4: Okay. I got to think that the attitudes then were different than they are today.
5: Oh, definitely. You know, it's. I talk about this a lot. Not only am I HIV, um, a person living with HIV, but my father died in 1984 in New York City, and he had AIDS when he died. So I've been seeing this thing from day one, mm-hmm. um, and I've seen how far we've come, and I I'm also see that if this carve-out happens— that we will probably take 10 steps
2: backwards, um, and it's going to hurt people. Liza, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. And,
4: Mike, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
4: Mike Lee is the uh, chief operating officer of Evergreen Health, Liza, one of their clients. We did reach out to Governor Hochul's office to ask specifically whether these uh, groups will be hurt as much as they contend. It comes in a statement from the New York State Department of Health, and here it is. The state fiscal year 2021 budget delayed the transition of pharmacy services from managed care back into fee-for-service to April 1, 2023. The transition is expected to result in a more efficient pharmacy reimbursement process, better consumer experience, they say, and higher rebates from drug manufacturers. The third 340B program is a federal program that is not being eliminated The Department of Health is working out with the impacted groups and is committed to ensuring a smooth transition.
0: We close now with Bishop Michael Badger from the Urban Think Tank in Buffalo and the Bethesda World Harvest International Church.
4: Before the program, we were talking in general about the East Side and about the conversation that needs to be had, and you crystallized it. You summarized it really well when you said, we don't need benevolence,
6: we need investment. Absolutely. Uh, The reason why the community looks like it does is the divestment that happened over the last uh, 50 years. And so to change that, you need investment. You don't need, benevolence takes care of a immediate need, but long-term, you're still faced with the same circumstances. And so what we we what we need in, in our community is those that are willing to come in and partner and recognize that there is business opportunities that can benefit uh, everybody involved. Six months after the shooting, are we stuck on benevolence, or is there still a need for that and the investment? I think there's still a need for both, uh, but I think that the latter is the most important. I think you have to change the demographics Um, While we need, you know, low and medium income housing, you cannot just put poor people on top of poor people and then expect box stores and others to come um, just out of goodwill. They're coming because they want to make money. That's why they're in business. So in order to do that, you need the type of demographics that will support, you know, a a Wegmans or a a Walgreens or some of the other uh, box stores. I don't want to parse your words, but but let me probe more into this idea of
4: benevolence versus investment. Is there a lack of investment because there is a lack of benevolence? Is it intrinsic racism that people
6: are not necessarily aware of? There might be some of that, but I think a lot of it just is ignorance. You know, not understanding, you know, the plight, of what has happened in East Buffalo, or the East Side, however you want to phrase that, and recognizing that it didn't get there by itself. It got there because intentionally you put a throughway through the middle of it and and ruined a beautiful uh, park you um took away a lot of the opportunities, you know, and, and 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 so when you had Bethlehem Steel and Republic Steel and Chevy and all of those places go and 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 then there was no investment made to ensure that housing and, and other things were kept up, you know, this is what you get. You get the third poorest city in the country. It wasn't always that way. It happened through a series of events. Now whether that was intentional, um I I'm I'm not prepared to say that it was intentional. The intent of the Kensington was to connect two yes, areas. Yes, that was intentional. W- without
4: without yeah. awareness of the fact they were splitting a neighborhood or was it just a matter of we don't care the I, way I needs think, to go? I think I think in
6: that case we don't, we don't care yeah. because we're going to make it easy to get in and out of the city to our jobs. And here's the interesting thing. You know, uh, the investments that were made, Amherst didn't get to be Amherst because people were smarter. They got to be Amherst because you decided to take the University of Buffalo and build it out there there. and and, and build all the infrastructure with tax dollars to make that happen. Had U B been built downtown like it was supposed to, we're talking about a totally different city. Had the, you know, the stadium uh, or, or the rapid transit had not just been down Main Street like it was, and, and went to other places, you know, there were so many mistakes that were made because a couple of individuals decided what was going to be best for them and didn't look at the whole of this community. You are in an interesting position. You have the facility there on Main
4: Street mm-hmm. near Utica. You're talking about investments, and to a large degree— you have put your money where your mouth is. You you are a landlord for retail
6: business along Main Street. Yeah, it's interesting, Dave. When I came back to Buffalo from Charlotte in, in January of 1990, it's been 32 years, um, our church, which was the old Regency Theater, mm-hmm. historically, uh, a little bit of information, the last silent movie was played at that theater. Uh, and um, so it was an, an old building that, looked like it should have been condemned. And we put three and a half million dollars into that building, revitalized it, changed it. And then the building next door to us that would take us to East Utica was in in disrepair. We talked to uh, the owner of it. He sold it to us. And we redid that building. And now we're putting some affordable apartments upstairs. We've got um, commercial space downstairs. So uh, altogether, we've invested um, over five million dollars on that main uh square area right there is it easy for businesses
4: to set up shop even and and everyone says jefferson but but let's look at that uh, mm.
6: that desolate stretch of main street is it easy for businesses to set up shop there I think there's an opportunity for business, but it has its challenges because of, you know, you're looking at the busiest uh, subway station in the city right there at Maine and Utica. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of traffic that happens there. And, and, and we have some challenges because of, of drug treatment centers and, and different things like that. But uh, I, I still think that there's great opportunity uh, for for business right there because of the amount of people uh, that um, visit that area every day. I think of um, the first President George Bush and his whole idea of a thousand points
4: of light. Mm. The idea was that volunteer groups and faith groups and people out there make those thousand points of light, that it didn't necessarily have to be
6: government. That's kind of what you're doing with the church, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I, I believe that... Um, the true gospel has to impact outside of the four walls, or what What does it mean to the community? If, if, if you're talking about reaching out and making a difference, if it's just in the four walls, then why are you necessary? Uh, I, I think you have to be able to impact outside of, of the four walls of the church to really be what Jesus preached and taught. Does
4: that absolve the government for not doing enough?
6: No, I, I, I the, the government government must play its part. Let's face it. We don't have the type of dollars that government has. But I think government shouldn't exclude faith-based organizations from being a part in, because those are our, we pay taxes too. And, and so Wait a
4: minute. Churches don't pay taxes. Churches
6: don't, but the people in them do. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. So um and and then the, the mission that we do uh, of feeding of, of clothing, of, you know, like this. Uh, right now, my wife, uh, and and I'm making this announcement, but our upstairs, our multipurpose room is filled with toys. I mean, literally filled from top to bottom with toys that we'll give away to hundreds of families uh, in the next two weeks. So, you know, those are things that we do, Every year, we, you know, during Thanksgiving, we feed families. We have coke giveaways. All of that, we spend our own money uh, to do that, as well as we work with uh, other groups to do that. You know, all of that happens because there is a mission that says, you know, we need to be our brother's keeper. And I think in all the analysis
4: of the things that have happened since the shootings on 514, there's been a lot of discussion about. The tight knit nature of the East Side, mm. the fact that there is not that the church isn't part of it, but the fact that there is a pre-existing
6: strong sense of community. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Buffalo is a, is is a big family. Uh, I guarantee you that uh, when you meet someone, um, if you talk long enough, you know somebody yeah. that they know or their their kin. You know. Um, you know, when we when we look at those that the Buffalo Ten that lost their lives, uh, I remember Miss Whitfield. I Garnell and Robin and I went to school ninety together. Tennessee Humble together. You know, we were we were childhood friends, and I remember Miss Whitfield as being one of the mothers of the community. And when we were growing up, you know, uh, people like Miss Whitfield would would correct you. You know, say, boy, you better stop doing that. Mm-hmm. You, g- get away from that. You know what I'm saying? They took ownership of the fact that they were, we were all their children.
4: And in your congregation, there are a lot of people that knew the ten.
6: Oh, absolutely. Everybody knew somebody. Yeah, uh, or had family that was were part of that. Yeah.
4: How's the community doing? Uh, is there still grief? Or, or I, I go back to your earlier premise now is the time for, uh, benevolence, uh, investment rather than benevolence. Yeah. Um, do we still have people
6: who are grieving and suffering and hurting? I would, I would definitely say to the families that lost loved ones, um, and, and, and to even those that saw that, absolutely. There is still, uh, the process of grief that is happening. Um, I, I think for, for, for many people, um, there is now the issue, okay, what what is going to happen out of this that will make this tragedy uh, turn into some type of triumph? People you think are ready to turn that corner? I think so. Okay. I think so. Uh, I think that that needs to happen in order to give some sense that this was just— you know, that people didn't just senseless lose their life, and nothing positive came out of it.
0: And that's today's program. Each episode is on WBFO, weekday mornings at 10, weeknights at 9, and you can listen on demand at wbfo.org. You can subscribe to our podcast, too, wherever you get yours. I'm Jay Moran. Thanks for listening.